are listening to episode eight of the Alan Gray podcast. I am Talia Patusi, one of the portfolio managers at Alan Gray and your host for this episode. 2023 is a significant year for Alan Gray. We are celebrating 50 years of investing. As we reflect on this milestone, we would like to thank you for placing your trust in us and for your continued support. Our number one focus remains the same. We want to ensure that your trust in Alan Gray is well placed. For this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Sandy McGregor, who is the longest serving member of the Alan Gray investment team. Sandy has seen our investment approach endure for several decades and joins me to reflect on the current challenges keeping many global and local investors up at night. A number of things have changed since my last podcast with Sandy in July of 2022, but some things remain the same. Now, Sandy, you made a comment to me recently that you've been investing in financial markets for 50 years, but things have never been as interesting as they are right now. And I thought we should unpack that. Now, we've lived through one of the biggest financial experiments in history. And in the last decade, it's certainly accelerated. Now, I'm talking here about quantitative easing and the journey to a world of zero interest rates. What happens when the price of money and time gets set to nil? So we're seeing a fallout in real time right now as the correction to higher rates takes place. And certainly, via that correction, central banks are waging a war against a monster of their own creation, being inflation. But we're also seeing a lot of cracks in the global financial system start to show. So I think we should start off there. What is the fallout that we're seeing currently? Well, in the last few months, we've seen a bit of a cryptocurrency meltdown. So we've seen various cryptocurrency tokens that were priced at really overzealous and fantasy type evaluations start to come back down to reality. We've seen the collapse of various cryptocurrency exchanges. And we've also seen more recently the UK liability-driven investment crisis unfold. And again, that was a direct consequence of 0% interest rates and the destruction of annuity income because various pension funds that were managing vast sums of money on behalf of retired people across Britain came close to a collapse amidst an unprecedented meltdown in UK government bond markets. So Sandy, take me through what we're seeing right now. It's being termed a banking crisis that has emerged in the US amongst primarily small and regional banks. I think it's probably a bit soon to call it a crisis, but but take me through what we're seeing. What we're seeing, as you said, is the consequences of a decade of totally mispriced interest rates. And during that period, various habits developed among the, the banks which have become totally unsustainable. The immediate problem with the um, Silicon Valley Bank is that they prudently invest in government bonds, and it's about 60% of their assets are government bonds. The problem is now that with interest rates rising to 5%, these portfolios of bonds have declined in value significantly. And when people became aware of the fact the bank was actually heading for insolvency because the, you know, the capital of the bank is not that big. 
relative to its assets, the money was flowing out of the bank very rapidly. So the bank has had to close down, has been closed down by the government. The interesting thing about this whole crisis is that the US government has learned, as all governments have, that if you allow an institution which is too big to fail, to fail, it has disastrous consequences. That was the experience which was learnt about from the collapse of Lehman in 2008. If Lehman had not been allowed to go bankrupt, the consequences would have been less dire. So there's no appetite now to in the central banks to allow any major part of the system to fail. As a consequence, the central banks are pushing money into the system to make sure that at any cost that no major part of the system fails. You've seen in Switzerland the 50 billion euros have been now lent to Credit Suisse because it's under a lot of difficulties and uh, it was suffering from capital withdrawals. And the American banks are the same. The Fed has undertaken to really to say whatever is necessary it will provide to the banks to keep them, make sure they can continue in business. The outcome of all of this is that there's going to be a lot of liquidity, new liquidity put into the system, which has profound consequences actually for asset prices as we go forward. Already you've seen a major bull market in the bonds last week as investors have totally changed their attitude to what the Fed will do to handle, manage the inflation, which was as previously its major concern, but now financial stability comes to the fore and always in this, for the central banks, financial stability becomes the major issue which they give priority to. You also mentioned the crisis in crypto. This is an interesting phenomenon because it's actually a very new industry. And the players are all young and lacking experience, but brave and willing to do amazing things, which often are very foolish and can be illegal. And what the outcome of this is that the people in the Bitcoin world, they haven't made the mistakes, they lack the experience to avoid mistakes. Because you don't actually avoid mistakes by having better knowledge. What you do is you avoid mistakes by making mistakes and learning from it. And that's what this process of the cryptocurrencies has to go through. Now, Sandy, I think what happens in the U.S. is relevant globally. And really, as the adage goes, when the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. Um, and in some ways, what the Federal Reserve is doing in terms of interest rates and what's happening in the U.S. bond market profoundly impacts our overnight rates of interest and our bond market. And in some ways, the U.S. Treasury yield curve is the yield curve to rule them all. So really, foreigners own quite a big portion of our debt, but the portion that they own has been declining. And certainly, through a banking crisis that they're experiencing right now, the spillover into our market is that with that risk-off sentiment, they're less likely to invest in our bonds. And we've been seeing that throughout this year. We've seen foreign ownership of SA government bonds fall to about 25%, keeping in mind the peak in 2018 at 40%. Now, this is very relevant because it affects our ability to fund SA government spending. In other words, to fund SA government's excess spending above our tax revenue. And that's something that we looked at, covered in, in various pieces this year, looking at the SA budget. And that's what I thought we'd move to next, is 
what does this mean for our budget and for the prospects for government in terms of funding their deficit? And what are we going to see moving forward? Yes, the budget which we've just been tabled is in itself a fairly reasonable document. The key aspect of it is that the Treasury is planning to have a primary surplus. And given our savings pool, we are capable of funding that the budget deficit without really having a, getting access to foreign money. We have a, a sufficiently large savings pool to, to do that. However, the margins are quite thin. Things can go wrong very fast. The worry about the budget is that, firstly, the spending will be slightly bigger. They already have tabled a 7% increase in government wages instead of a 3%, and the unions are asking for even more. So there will be some creep upwards in expenditures. But the big risk is on the revenue side. The commodity prices, particularly the platinum prices, have more than halved in the case of platinum and palladium and rhodium. So, and that's a, the biggest single source of revenue for the government. But all the commodities are under pressure. So the profitability of the mining industry, which has produced the great tax windfall of the last year, is also under strain because the margins of the companies are, are under pressure. Costs are going up, revenue is coming down, and so the tax take can contract quite significantly. And this is true of business in general. Load shedding has eroded business margins. We have entered a situation where the, the risk is that the budget deficit will be significantly bigger than has been estimated. And I think it's so pertinent that you bring up load shedding. If we just look at the recent financial reporting period for corporates, it's really made one thing abundantly clear, and that is that South African companies are reallocating billions of rands towards the extraordinary costs associated with load shedding, which, as you say, is going to have knock-on effects on the budget. So really, it's going to hit financial results now and tax revenue with a lag. And I mean, you bring up the SA mining sector. I mean, it's really an array of SA business sectors that are being hit with that raised cost of production. And it's not only via the extraordinary price of diesel consumption, keeping in mind that diesel prices remain 48% more expensive in rands than they were in pre-pandemic 2019. And that in fact, diesel generated power is about 40% to 60% more expensive than the average ESCOM tariff per unit of electricity. Then additionally, beyond that, I mean, for many of these corporates, they're using diesel-run generators that were simply not designed to run continuously for as many as 12 hours per day. So they're experiencing frequent generator breakdowns. And maintenance obviously bears its own financial costs, as well as those from lost business hours. So just looking at, at the array of SA business sectors that I mentioned, Beyond just SA's mining industry, which of course is, is suffering enormously. I mean, I've heard that at elevated levels of load shedding, various mining operations often grind to a halt and they restrict their power supply so that it can be used only to evacuate underground employees and maintain some form of safe working conditions. I mean, in another part of the economy, power cuts are wreaking havoc on telecommunication companies, on mobile operators. It's leading to lost revenue because they actually see their tower batteries get depleted and that causes dropped signal and reduced network availability that then leads to lost revenue. 
Then even in the banking sector, I'm noticing in recent financial results, there remains quite a bit of unease around some of their smaller business customers and the prospects for a rise in non-performing loans. And then obviously, I mean, clothing retailers, where they don't have sufficient backup, particularly in outlying malls, I think they're losing a lot of trading hours to load shedding. And really, for food retailers, I mean, even more so, where, you know, the rise in cost of production is hitting them via unit cost of producing food via the SA agriculture industry, further down the line, they're also absorbing really a litany of expenses. So they must really maintain the integrity of refrigeration to offer fresh produce. This is big retailers like Woolies, Pick and Pay, Checkers and so on. This requires often removing stock from sale if the cold supply chain has been broken at any point in the supply logistical network. So such retailers are really under enormous strain. So all of these various issues that are being experienced throughout businesses in South Africa is going to bleed through into tax revenues with a lag. And I don't think we've seen that impact yet. And, and as you say, perhaps the revenue estimates that were being baked into a budget were a bit too rosy. I think over the next three years, they were looking for on average 6% per annum increase in revenue. Things may not pan out, you know, as rosy as, as those estimates. And, and then just taking this on, this conversation on to SA growth estimates, I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts there, Sandy. I, I mean, National Treasury, again, coming back to the budget, they baked in a, about a 1.8% real GDP growth by financial year 25-26. I mean, what are your thoughts there? Does it seem plausible? In the short term, the problem is clearly Eskom, but also you mustn't forget Transnet and failures of other government institutions, water, municipalities. Almost every single government institution is in a service delivery crisis, the exceptions being the Western Cape and maybe the Reserve Bank and Treasury. So we have a generally an, an environment which it's very difficult for the private sector to operate. And you're seeing that, as you described, the consequences of that is going to be a very severe contraction in business activity. The interesting thing about this crisis, though, is that Dorator actually, his major contribution as when he was chief executive of Eskom was to point out the direction which we should go to fix the problem. And there is a program to fix the problem, which if it's implemented, it can within two or three years resolve the crisis. This involves massive investment in renewables by the private sector, getting the existing fleet of coal-fired power stations back running properly, which could happen fairly rapidly. It's interesting that Kasili now is being fast-tracked to come back in with two gigawatts of power in, in November. The solution there is is at hand on many aspects. The one thing that is really has to be done to fix the problem is getting the distribution system unbundled from Eskom and actually geared up to distribute renewable energy more efficiently. And once that's done, the crisis will become very much less. We will be actually able to operate the economy because the if you get five gigawatts of renewable power in, and it's effectively like a contraction of demand by five gigawatts, and with the additional coal power stations coming back on, the crisis should disappear in about one or two years. The impact on the economy of all this investment into the renewable sector is also, also significant. There's quite a lot of activity in that way. So the process of fixing Eskom 
actually, first of all, it contributes a bit to economic growth. And secondly, it actually means that we can, within a one or two years, two years, three years perhaps, emerge from this crisis and be able to actually get the economy growing again. So we have a period where the economy is not going to grow. And then after that, though, we have the opportunity to actually return to a more, a more normal growth rate. What's interesting about what you've just highlighted now is that there's going to be a period where the economy is not going to grow. And I think that makes it really challenging for institutions like the South African Reserve Bank to set appropriate levels of monetary policy and interest rates right now. Because really, with growth expectations so disastrously low or essentially nil for the immediate term, the implication is that living standards will continue to fall for South Africa. In other words, that population growth is going to outstrip economic growth in the short term. And they have to weigh that up against inflation that has perhaps been a bit stickier than what they've expected, particularly in the food basket. And then somehow against those two opposing forces set an appropriate level of interest rate. So what are your thoughts around that? The Reserve Bank's major concern is wages. High food prices immediately puts pressure up on wages because it is the key spending of, of the majority of people. Wage growth is running at about 6% at the moment. And this is much higher than the Reserve Bank's target. So the Reserve Bank has to keep rates high and maybe higher than where they are now for a significant period until the wages actually retreat back into a level of its 4.5% target range. The problem the Reserve Bank has is that inflation is proving very sticky and it's going to be a long time before we can actually go back to the sort of the halcyon period where rates were much lower. The Reserve Bank is very committed to uh, preventing inflation getting entrenched and getting a, an inflation spiral entrenched into the system. So it will stick with this mandate. And once again in the discussion, I guess, the growth of wages and of the public sector wage bill is coming in. On the one hand, feeding higher inflation, such that the Reserve Bank must keep interest rates at an elevated level. And on the other hand, putting the budget forecast at risk in terms of the estimates of government's expenditure in the years going forward. So, I mean, you've mentioned there's been some slippage now in terms of the wage offers that are on the table to public sector unions. And we've all seen that play out in the papers with government at first hardlining, saying they would only offer 3% and unions saying, you know, well, this is really unfair. Essentially, they want wage increases well in excess of inflation. And if government does give in and start to agree to a 7% increase sort of across the board for not maybe just this year, but for several years out, it makes a huge difference to the deficit. It means that you're starting to compound a line item in the budget, being the public sector wage bill, which is a 700 billion rand line item at, let's say, 7% per annum, instead of, you know, they forecasted 3% per annum. It means that by year four, you're looking at them spending about 120 billion rand more than what they would have. So this has really wide-reaching implications, not 
just for inflation, but also for expenditure, for government bond yields, for the level of interest and inflation in the South African economy. Just building on what's feeding perhaps high yields, you wrote a piece recently, Sandy, on South Africa's grey listing. And my takeaway from that piece was that it's not necessarily going to have a knock-on impact on the level of our interest rates. Foreigners have already, to a large extent, started to withdraw from our government bond markets since we fell out of the World Government Bond Index and were downgraded to junk our credit rating during the COVID period. You had another takeaway from grey listing, which I thought would be interesting to bring up now. The actual immediate impact of grey listing isn't really the problem. It means that the asset managers and banks have to do more work to comply with regulations and so on. But that can be done. And South Africa has a very strong links with businesses outside South Africa. And those links will continue. What the worry is, is that grey listing is essentially a Western invention. And we are entering a world where it is increasingly bipolar. There's a world of the Chinese and the Russians on the one hand, and the world of the Americans and Europeans, Japanese on the other hand. And we have always been firmly entrenched in the latter. With the um, grey listing, the natural propensity of our government to actually favour Russia in this war, for instance, and try and have close relationships with China, means that we will gradually drift away from the West and the process of getting off the grey list will increasingly lose priority and we will solve the problem by becoming actually a satellite of China and Russia in, the, in this world where everything is dividing into two camps. And I'm not sure that's the right way for us to go, but the impact of grey listing will make, inevitably make us in the, go in that direction because the government, the ANC, is not going to be willing to make the effort to actually get off the list. It will far easier just talk to the Russians and Chinese. South Africa's grey listing, of course, is an event which is the end of a process. In practice, the market grey listed us long ago. And then, Sandy, you've raised the all-important issue of politics and what's playing out with regards to the ANC and perhaps their leanings and their alliances. Now, this is perhaps a, a risk for government debt investors that isn't often enough discussed. What are your thoughts around the 2024 elections and around the ANC's political future? Yes, I think this is already getting increasing attention among investors, but perhaps over the next year it is going to become the most important single issue in people's minds. The ANC government is likely to lose um, its majority in the next general election. Load shedding has had devastating impact on the support it has from its usual urban voters. And so you're talking of them getting maybe down to 40% of the vote, maybe 45, but it's definitely going to be the biggest party, but it will be a minority party. And our, actually our constitution has not been designed really to handle this sort of issue. There's been an implicit uh, assumption that there will be a majority party. Therefore, we'll find it difficult actually to progress from having a one party ruling to a national coalition system. The 
market has been calm about this because they it's expecting that Cyril Ramaphosa will be president for another five-year term. Ramaphosa is being someone that we people know and they trust. The business world believes that in fact maybe he'll be able to actually keep the show on the road and keep things stable in transition from the old system where the ANC was a straight majority to this coalition of system. But it's not clear Ramaphosa has the appetite to actually go the full term. And increasingly people are questioning whether in fact the election will be followed by soon afterwards a resignation of Ramaphosa, either because he's dislodged by his opponents within the party or because he himself decides not to persist with the job which is very difficult to perform. And that would be disastrous for the political stability of this country because the market will not like that. And the market is going to be faced with increasing doubts about the political future of this country after the next election next year. So we're going into a period where we can be under a lot of pressure from foreign investors taking money out. And as day gets closer and closer, people start to act accordingly. So it is perhaps the impending election and this outcome is perhaps the biggest business risk and market risk we have. I guess it's something though that investors will probably struggle to price because it's such a binary outcome. Yes. It's one of those things you can't work out. This is why at the moment the world is so much different to where it was. There are so many issues like this which are requiring us to have to make decisions about which we've had no recent experience to handle. In so many of these problems, people, they open the book, they look in it, and then they say, well, how do we solve that problem? And then people say, well, there's no solution, actually. And then they merely close the book and say, well, I hope that doesn't happen soon. But in fact, we've seen with the pandemic so many issues which we thought would never happen have been accelerated. China now has, for instance, uh, reached peak population. The whole issue of uh, aging population has come to the fore as an issue. And in South Africa, our political situation is suddenly accelerating to problems which I think a lot of us were saying, well, I hope that doesn't happen soon, and more or less have been conducting our lives on the assumption it's not going to happen soon, to the fact that these problems are going to happen soon, and we have to think about them very seriously. It's funny, in some ways I feel like our discussion has come full circle. Uh, we started out saying we were in really living in unprecedented times, trying to grapple with the world moving away from 0% interest rates after this 40-year financial experiment, and now we're speaking about unprecedented political outcomes that may occur. Sandy, as my final question, I mean, reflecting on the past is most useful, I think, when it can be used to help us better prepare for the future. And as we mark 50 years of investing here at Alan Gray, and in fact, 50 years of you also investing, are there any overarching investment lessons that come to mind for our listeners? I think when the 2008 crisis came, I said to our investment team, which was quite new at the time, that don't worry about it, it's my eighth crisis. And these, we get through these things. And so when a crisis happens, you must remember that there have been crises every now and again for as long as time has been. We've always had a crisis and we've always come through them. Some of them are more difficult than others, but we do come through them. 
The problem with the present crisis is it's perhaps more difficult to see the way forward than it has been in other crises. There are so many uncertainties now. It's a new world which we not really uh, don't have a lot of history to back up. What happens in an economy is it tends to be long periods of stability where certain rules apply. Then the whole system blows up for some reason or other. And then a new set of rules apply, a new game develops. And it's very difficult in those transitional periods to work out what the new rules are, what the new game is, where the new opportunities are. And that's where we are at the moment. We're in this one of these transitional periods where it's very difficult to work out what we should be doing to manage our affairs and to prosper in the new future. But one also finds that in these periods, tremendous opportunities can develop. The whole history of Alan Gray's investment firm has been characterized by in bad times, we tended to do well. In good times, we tend to be maybe ordinary or occasionally we've done very well in good times, but we often have just produced ordinary results. But the combination of keeping your money in bad times and not losing it in the bad times and then making a normal return in the good times means you actually over the long cycle actually outperform. And that's what our investment style has enabled us to do. And so we're entering one of those periods where actually our investment style actually is probably better suited to the world we're now living in than the one we've come out on the last 10 years, which was essentially a momentum-driven market. So we don't know the future, but what you can do is conduct your affairs with a prudence and a structure which enables you to benefit from the outcomes that develop. That's what we've done in our previous years when we've come through these crises. And I think there's no reason this is going to be any different. We've lasted through a lot of crises. They come. And one shouldn't get too pessimistic about it. This is not the last crisis we're going to go through. It's only one of the many we're going to go through. Thank you to Sandy McGregor for joining me for this episode. Sandy and I covered a range of issues that are influencing investor sentiment, from global interest rates normalizing above 0%, from this emerging US banking crisis, its impact on South Africa, the budget, our own load shedding concerns, and the country's economic growth prospects. If you would like to get in touch, you can send an email to info at alangray.co.za. Lastly, Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. To view the T's and C's and explore our latest insights and investment offering, please visit alangray.co.za. Until next time, I'm Talia Petusi from Alan Gray. This podcast was produced by Volume, and thank you for listening.